Our text for meditation this evening will be out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 6. So if you would like to track along with the conversation, I invite you to open your Bibles to do so. Again, it's Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. And while you're opening there, let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we confess that without your word, we would continue in our ignorance of you and your mighty works. And we confess, too, that even when we receive the light of your testimony, we are often forgetful of your goodness and mercy. So open our eyes this evening, we pray. Remind us of your glorious works. Amen. So why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? Or for that matter, why do we celebrate any sort of recurring events like anniversaries, birthdays, or Christmas? Is it for the mere sake of tradition? Is it for the stoking of sentimental endorphins as we surround ourselves with smells and sights that help us escape the cares of this world? If this were the only motive, it would be reserved for those who have the means to do so. But what about those who cannot afford it, or those whose life circumstances are so pressing that they're unable to escape them, even for a moment? Are they then unable to partake in a Thanksgiving celebration? So why do we celebrate it? What is it we are doing fundamentally that makes it worth doing on a regular basis? Well, I would submit that it is the act of remembrance that is of itself the primary benefit from the celebration. You see, we are a forgetful type of creature. Our memories, with all their capacity, tend to be short-lived in some areas. And so taking the moment to remember our blessings and privileges and to intentionally announce our gratitude for them is a good and wise action because we often do have very much to be grateful for. And so that is what we're doing here tonight. We have gathered to give thanks to God Almighty for the various ways he has manifested his goodness in our lives. However, many of you here are suffering through various trials both presently or perhaps recently in this past year. And sometimes, in those moments, it can be hard to consider the good goodness of God. We are prone to have a diminishing view of the Lord when our troubles loom large. Therefore, it's my prayer and intention as we walk through our verse together that we will right that misalignment of thought this evening. So without further waiting, let us read our verse. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So just as with the act of remembering our recent and present blessings, it helps us to build up a spirit of gratitude in our hearts, so too I want us to revisit some of the so-called obvious Christian truths of God in order to strengthen your faith. See, sometimes these truths grow dull with familiarity. So it's wise and good to take some time to revisit them, to pay attention to them, to cherish them, and to ruminate on them, and thus inflame our hearts by them and to experience them as a means by which we reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God and his Son, Jesus Christ. So tonight from our text, we will look briefly at five truths about God, particularly within the context of his plan of salvation. 
Five truths that ought to ground us with assurance and comfort that leads to thanksgiving. So first truth, God initiates. How does our verse start? It reads, I am the Lord, I have called you. It is always fitting that every good thing we learn from Scripture has God at the beginning. Even the opening words of Scripture's testimony says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Anything that reveals the glory and might of the Lord starts with God himself acting first. He doesn't respond or react. He initiates. He moves first. In the portion of Scripture in which we find ourselves this evening, that is the the hope-filled chapter 40s of Isaiah, as I like to think of them, God's strength and wisdom are being exalted over and above the prevailing strength and wisdom of man. In these chapters, there is often a comparison made between the Lord and mankind. For example, the fleeting nature of mankind's glory versus the prevailing and lasting nature of God's word. Or the limited understanding of man versus the deep, unsearchable knowledge of the Lord. And one of the things that shows up in these chapters to contrast the world against God is the repeated references to idols. These idols, Isaiah shows, can do nothing. They, or the gods they represent, neither can explain the things of the past, nor can they foretell the things to come. Indeed, their very existence relies on the hands of man to shape and form them. In light of this, we see that it is always fitting that we recognize and remember that God initiates, that his display of glory begins with him. God must act first because he is the only one with the power to act. And in his mercy and grace, when he acts to display his glory, he calls us into that drama and we become a part of that narrative. So we do well to remember this truth. Second truth, God's purposes are good. As our verse continues, it says, I have called you in righteousness. Here are kind words for the doubtful soul. I dare say some can accept that God must be the first to act. The first mover of things must exist and be. But after that acknowledgement, we so often fall into a pit of despondency. We wonder to ourselves, God may be powerful, but is he good? We ask, does he do good with all the means he has about himself? We are not always sure that he does. But here in our verse, we should stop and listen to scripture. He has called his people in righteousness, with righteous intent, for a righteous purpose. Righteousness is a word we sometimes fumble with. What does it mean? Well, righteousness, in a simple definition, means to be in accordance with God. In scripture, the righteous are called blameless by God. They are the ones who are upright in heart. And righteous action is an action that corresponds with what God requires. And what does God require of us? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The measurement of righteousness is often measured against the moral law of God. And the moral law is itself the definition of good because it is grounded in the nature of God. So the very pinnacle of righteousness is God himself. Therefore, when God acts, his actions are good, and they are for good purposes. As Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 
Indeed, we do well to remember this truth. Third truth, God leads. As our text says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. Okay, you might be thinking God is powerful and God is wise. He acts to bring forth his glory and calls us into it. And we can be sure he will do good because he is good and his purposes are good. But where to next? How do we reach this glorious destination and see its fulfillment? How do we keep from wandering aimlessly so that we arrive at the end? Can we be certain that we will not be lost along the way? That we won't be left behind after a particular stumble or fall? Or take courage at the words we read. God will take you by the hand and keep you. There could scarce be a better line in the Bible for a trepid heart to to memorize and to pray regularly, saying, Lord God, take me by the hand and keep me. Do not let my wayward feet wander far from you. If I should stumble, remind me that your hand holds mine so that I shall not fall. God's leading is tender. He is full of compassion for you and he understands your weaknesses. He does not hurry you along at a pace that you cannot keep up with, but instead he is patient with you. Though he could easily stride on ahead, he does not exercise his strength to frighten you or abandon you. Instead he leads you, always in reach, as he takes you by the hand, and always at the forefront of any danger that would lie across the path so as to keep you. Christian, the Lord is your shepherd. When you feel lost lost as one at sea, tossed in the waves of life, Remember this sweet truth. God is leading you by the hand. He is the rock upon which you can take shelter and be kept safe. This is a sweet truth to remember, for surely it is one we often need to look to. Fourth truth, God's desire to save is lasting. We read in our verse, I will give you as a covenant to the people. Here we see that God's actions to redeem and his good purposes to save a people are backed by commitment to see it accomplished. It might be one thing to look at the character and nature of God, as we have been doing, to strengthen our trust in him. It is a whole other level of assurance to read a line of scripture, as we have just done, to see that God makes a covenantal commitment to us in his plan of salvation. He says he will do it because the Lord is unchangeable, single-minded here in his intent, without a shifting shadow due to change, we can take a phrase from his mouth that says, I will, and count it as a promise. And furthermore, he codifies his promise with a covenant, a solemn agreement between himself and mankind. We see in other places in Scripture that this covenant is an everlasting covenant, one which binds himself to his people always through his commitment. Here should be a deep foundation of assurance for the weary. Here you can be released of all burdens as you walk through the Christian life. Just as he started a good work inside you, he is faithful to see it to completion. This is a gospel truth we ought to remember every morning when we wake up and every evening when we lie down to sleep. Fifth and final truth, God's plan of salvation is global. Our verse ends with, a light for the nations. Well, at our last reflection, we have a final truth about God that should bolster our confidence in his goodness and power. His plans for his people extends to all the nations. I imagine there may be some 
who, in their doubts, consider the Scriptures and its promises to be limited to just the Hebrew nation of Israel. After all, they are the chosen offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. They are the ones who received the covenants and oracles of God. They are the ones who were awarded land. God himself led them out of slavery through the wilderness and into that promised land where he was pleased to establish his temple and dwell with them. It is to this audience, Israel, that the prophet Isaiah is talking to, to reassure them in their exile that God is still at work in and through them. And it is in verses like ours this evening that we are reminded that God's plan of salvation was always intended to be a blessing to the whole earth as declared to Abraham in Genesis. I'm going to assume that it's not likely that the majority of you here this evening have a claim to a Hebrew lineage. Rather, you're probably more like those Gentiles who are lost in darkness without knowledge of God and his mercy and his grace. But God's salvation is for you too, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There is no other who can save you. His call goes to the ends of the earth. As Isaiah writes in chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Although much of Scripture's revelation of God's plan for redemption deals with the Hebrew people, we see here that God's commitment to save for himself a people is a call to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that truth should give us much comfort and reason for praise. Well, as I said at the outset, my hope was to encourage and strengthen your hearts by expounding on five truths of the living God. And hopefully these meditations have stirred your affections, even if just for a little bit. But perhaps still there is uncertainty. Did I just give you a little sentiment and mere sentiment alone? Or can these truths of God really be shown to be true for you and me? Is there anything concrete in this life of existence that can bind us to these truths? Well, I'm glad you asked. These truths, this scripture, like all scripture, points us to Jesus Christ, a real man of history, a man laid claim to by all the world religions and also by the so-called spiritual as one of their own. Everyone wants a piece of the Jesus pie, it seems, but even their ignorance proves much. Why is Jesus so important to the hearts and minds of so many? It is because there is none like Jesus, and God intended it to be so. Despite all the lip service and honor that people think they pay to him, no title but the Son of God suits him well. He is God the Father's chosen servant. Jesus is the one who accurately represents his people in God's purposes and mission. In just a few verses ahead of the one we looked at tonight, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is the one of whom the Lord says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Jesus Christ is the light of revelation of God's salvation given to all the nations. Simeon said of Jesus when he was presented at the temple as a baby in Luke chapter 2, saying, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He gave his life as a ransom for many. To all who feel the weight of their sin, to those who are convinced that there is no way to pay the debt they owe to a holy God for their sins, Jesus gives his life for you. In his death, his blood ratifies the new covenant, a solemn agreement between God and his people, that he will forgive their iniquities and remember their transgressions no more. And the certainty of this promise is demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead. Christ was raised for your justification, your righteousness, your right standing with God, because Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And so, brother, sister, convicted sinner, Jesus is your assurance and comfort that these five truths of God Almighty are truths that you can believe are meant for your encouragement. Let us therefore receive that encouragement by faith, and let us be renewed to continue in faithfulness so as to be a useful instrument in God's hands to shine as a light to the nations for the increasing glory of Christ our King. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for your love and mercy, that while we were still sinners, you saved us. We praise you for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace, and your good intents and purposes for our lives. We praise you that you lead us through our trials and temptations, and we ask that you deliver us from evil. And we praise you that your commitment to keep for yourself to a people to enjoy forever will last in eternity. And we praise you that your plan of salvation extends to all the earth and that you welcome sinners of all tongues and nations. Thank you, Jesus, for securing all these blessings for us. Amen.